Welcome to the Magnificat Podcast. We are an international ministry to Catholic women. Throughout this series, we will pray together, share insights, and hear amazing testimonies, typically from women of faith who have been touched by the power of the Lord in their lives. This is a decidedly Catholic podcast, and in this series, you will hopefully learn more about the Catholic faith, God, the Blessed Mother, and much more. Thanks so much for joining us. Now let's listen to a great program. My name is James Sagers, and my friends call me Jim or Jimmy. And it's my pleasure to introduce this series to you, Understanding Catholicism. Please join me as we say the Jesus Prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. O my divine Savior, transform me into yourself. May my hands be the hands of Jesus. May my tongue be the tongue of Jesus. Grant that every faculty of my body may serve only to glorify you. Above all, transform my soul and all its powers, that my memory, my will, and my affections may be the memory, the will, and the affections of Jesus. I pray you to destroy in me all that is not you, and grant that I may live but in you and for you, and that I may truly say with St. Paul, I live, no now not I, but Christ lives in me. Well, today we're going to cover a wonderful topic. It's called Jesus Comes to Save Us. So we're going to cover a number of things today. We're going to talk about how the four Gospels introduce our Lord, then Jesus' mission and message, the Sermon of the Mountain, and then we're going to end talking about Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection. So the Father sends his divine Son. And St. Paul tells us that when the fullness of time has fully come, God sent forth his divine Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves or God saves. He's also called the Christ uh, from the Greek word Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew Messiah. So the Christ means the Messiah, the anointed one. So he is the anointed Savior who fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament. So let's take a look at how this is treated in the beginning of the three Gospels, beginning with John. John, interestingly, opens his Gospel like the book of Genesis, in the beginning, because Jesus is the divine word who became flesh that is truly human in order to bring about a new creation so that we humans who are estranged from God could be redeemed and become children of God. John fashions then, after introducing Christ, the Son of God, a literary creation week. And the first day of this week, we get John the Baptist's testimony to Jesus. Beginning in verse 29, John does something really interesting. He says, and the next day, well, the next day after what? After the day where John the Baptist gives his testimony to Jesus. So in this next day, Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God 
who is baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes, and the next day in verse 35, Jesus now is calling his first few disciples, Andrew and Peter, or Simon, is going to be called Peter, which is Cephas in Greek. And then the fourth day, beginning in verse 43, he says, and the next day, Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel. Now, what's interesting, beginning in chapter 2, John does something really clever. He says, on the third day, well, the third day after what? Well, it's the third day after the fourth day, which means it's the seventh day. So what he does, he incorporates the idea of the seventh, which is the word, the number of the covenant, and he incorporates that in the third day, which is a resurrection motif. And what happens on this third day, which is also the fourth day, we have the wedding feast at Cana, where the heavenly bridegroom comes to begin his wooing his people into a covenantal relationship with the heavenly father. And here Jesus then changes water somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons into wine. And the disciples see this, and they, we, John tells us this is the first of his signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Well, signs point to another reality. For example, if you see smoke, it points to the reality of fire. So what is the sign of the miracle of changing water into wine? It points to Jesus as the heavenly husband who is coming to bring the heavenly wine, which is going to transform us into the divine son. John the Baptist introduces Jesus as the heavenly bridegroom. He's asked, are you the Messiah? He says, no. He who has the bride, meaning Jesus, is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, which is John the Baptist, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And therefore, this joy of mine is full. And then he gives us this wonderful saying, he must increase and I must decrease. Jesus also identifies his mother prophetically at the wedding feast of Cana when he calls her a woman. He's identifying Mary with the woman of Genesis 3.15. So it's a prophetic title of Mary. Normally, you wouldn't call your mother, uh, you wouldn't say, woman, what time is breakfast? <laughs> you get hit on the side of the head. And so there's twice Jesus identifies his mother as that prophetic woman here at Cana when he begins his public assault on the kingdom of Satan, and then secondly on the cross when he completes his victory over sin and death. Mary then is going to be revealed as the mother of the redeemed, the mother of the church. And then in chapter 4, Jesus goes to Samaria and begins to woo the Samaritan woman into a covenantal relationship with him, which is a beautiful story. Mark's gospel begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he tells us that John the Baptist comes to prepare the way of Jesus. And so he quotes the book of Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. St. Matthew 
also does something very clever in his gospel. He begins his gospel with Jesus as the son of David and also the promised son of Abraham. And he does this in a very clever way, really emphasizing the that Jesus is the Davidic son of David, that is, the son. And he does that by structuring Jesus' genealogy into three groups of 14. So from Abraham to David, 14 generations, from David to the exile, 14 generations, and from the exile to Jesus, 14 generations. So you'd say, well, what's the big deal of 14? Well, in Hebrew, the letters of the alphabet have a numerical value as in Latin. And the way you would spell David's name in Hebrew would be D-V-D, because Hebrew doesn't have vowels. So D has a numerical value of four, V has a numerical value of six, D a numerical value of four. So four plus six plus four is 14. So Jews reading this pronunciation immediately, Jesus the son of David. And then he tells the story, the visit of the wise men, and then Jesus's escape to Egypt with the Holy Family, and then the return to Nazareth. And he also tells us a tragic tale of the slaughter of the innocents. There's a tradition that Rachel, which was Jacob's wife, was buried near Ramah, a town between Jerusalem and Bethel. So after Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, Ramah became the assembly point where the Jews were marched into exile. And so just as Ramah was a city of sorrow because of the exile, now Bethlehem becomes, like Ramah, a city of sorrow because of the slaughter of these innocent babies and then the exile of Jesus and the Holy Family into Egypt. The next thing that St. Matthew develops in his gospel is the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus is embracing his passion. His baptism is a public acceptance of his mission as the suffering servant. And so Jesus tells James and John, he asks them a question, are you able to drink of the chalice that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Of course, he's referring to his passion. Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how I am constrained until it is accomplished. So at his baptism, Jesus is embracing his future passion and death and all the agony and suffering that goes with it. All of that to show his love for the Father and his love for us. And so in this period where Jesus goes into the desert after his baptism and is fasting for 40 days, he encounters Satan and he, the new Adam, defeats Satan the way the first Adam did not do. And so he gets the same three temptations that were thrown at Eve. First is lust of the flesh. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, pride of life. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels charge over you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And the third temptation, the lust of the eyes, the desire for possessions, all these things, the kingdoms of the world and the glory they're in, I will give you 
if you will fall down and worship me. St. Luke begins his wonderful gospel with the birth of John the Baptist. We're told that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb in order to prepare him to be the precursor of the future Messiah. And then we come to Mary's Annunciation, the second yes, because the first yes was the son's yes to the father when he became man, willed to become man. It's, it's so wonderful. We see this all through sacred scripture, how God chooses to incorporate humans into roles of subordinate mediators. And so Mary is asked to be the mother of the Messiah, and her response is, let it be done to me according to your word. So beautiful. Talking about subordinate mediators, I'm recalling what St. Paul said in his letter to the Colossians. It's a very important point. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in the church's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Wow. Imagine that God brings us, invites all of us in to take our sufferings and to unite with the sufferings of Christ on the cross for the salvation of others. When the Blessed Mother asked, or tells the angel Gabriel, asked the question, how will this be? What is she asking? Is she saying to the angel, golly, I have no idea how babies are conceived. So, can you please give me sex education 101? That makes no sense at all. But in lieu of the fact that Mary had a determination, a vow to remain a virgin, it makes all the sense in the world. And this is exactly what the angel Gabriel addresses. So he says to her, how will you become pregnant? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, you would think that after getting this astounding news that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah, the Blessed of them might say, Wow, this is fantastic. This is the greatest thing that ever happened to any human. But what does Mary do? Her immediate thoughts is to go serve her elderly cousin Elizabeth, who now is pregnant. And when she gets to see Elizabeth, Elizabeth says to her, Blessed are you among women. So Mary is the woman of Genesis 3.15, who with her divine son is going to crush Satan's head. And Mary's role in the defeat of the devil is foreshadowed by three Jewish women in the Old Testament. The first is Judith who beheaded Holofernes, a Persian general, during the siege of Bethulia, a city north of Jerusalem. And because she saved her people, it was said of her, Blessed by the Most High God is Judith among all women on earth. Knows the parallel between that and what Elizabeth says to Mary. The second person is Jael who drove a tent peg through the temple of the Canaanite general Sisera. This led to Israel's victory over Jabin, 
and the Canaanite king. And the song of Deborah declared, most blessed of women be Jael. And then finally, a certain woman who's not even named threw an upper millstone upon Abimelech's head and crushed his skull as he was salting Thebes. Abimelech was the ambitious son of Gideon by a Canaanite concubine who began an uprise against God's people. So Mary then is the true Ark of the Covenant visiting Elizabeth, foreshadowed by the Ark coming into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Mary's Magnificat was prefigured by Hannah's lovely prayer extolling God's greatness over the birth of Samuel in his dedication to the Lord. So now we come in Luke's Gospel to the birth of Jesus. Sad to say, there was no place for them in the inn. So Jesus begins his earthly life with rejection. You know, you have to wonder, what was the Heavenly Father thinking of to have his divine son born in a cave outside of Bethlehem? I mean, what father would do that? But if you understand how God judges things, that actually was a perfect place for the Son of God to be born. Because number one, it shows his estrangement from the world, but secondly, it shows what he was surrounded with was not beautiful material surroundings, but the love of Mary, the love of Joseph, and the love of the holy angels. So it was a perfect place for Jesus to be born. And then they're going to be visited by the shepherds and by the holy angels. After Jesus' birth, he's circumcised, and St. Luke tells us he's going to be presented to, in, the, in the temple, and Mary and Joseph give the offering of the poor. And then Simeon says to Mary, This child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and a sword will piece through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And we can only imagine in the life of Mary, who would have known the Old Testament scriptures thoroughly, would have fully understood the suffering servant passages in Isaiah, would have understood the future that's waiting her divine son. So now we want to go to Jesus' mission. How does it begin? It begins like the mission of John the Baptist. It begins with a call to repentance. The Greek word there is motanoia. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So both John the Baptist and Jesus use this term, this call to repentance, because this is the beginning of our relationship with God. So repentance embraces a deep-seated interior transformation, a change, a complete turning away from sin to embracing self-sacrificing love. It's a new way of thinking by rejecting the allure of concupiscence and the seduction of the world and rejecting the devil's lies. So in summary, the repentance that we're called to requires embracing the divine lover, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the bridegroom of our soul. 
So Jesus is going to begin his reconquest, his reuniting of the 12 tribes by preaching in the northern cities in the region of Zebulon and Napoli. Now this is significant because these were the first two areas of the northern kingdom of Israel that were conquered by the Assyrian Empire before the final destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. So it's a sign that the Messiah has come in order to save his people. And what is the message? Jesus, who had the Masonic title of Prince of Peace, declared, Do not think I have come to bring peace upon the earth. I have come to bring not peace, but the sword. What is that all about? The sword Jesus talks about is the two-edged sword of truth, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and dissecting the thoughts and the intentions of the human heart. In St. John's vision recorded in the book of Revelation, the sword is graphically portrayed as coming from Jesus' mouth. So because of this, there's a conflict that arises between this sword that cuts through all lies and deceptions and the rationalizations that springs from all the enemies of truth. Number one, concupiscence. The powerful inner inclination that we find within ourselves to sin that St. Paul describes so graphically. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my innermost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. It's a battle against the world, an external battle, all the false barriers that propagandize the threefold lust, lust of the eyes, the desire to possess things, lust of the flesh, inordinate sensual desire, and finding the pride of life. And then the external enemy, the devil, the arch enemy of God and humans. He is the evil one who disguises himself as an angel of light in order to deceive men. He rules the world captive to sin and is utterly opposed to the salvation of the world. Wow. So what we see in sacred scripture and even in history, as human society becomes more corrupt and under the power of sin, there's always an increase in violence and hatred against those who follow Jesus. Truth can become so abhorred that rational discussions become impossible. Well, welcome to our world. In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus gives us a whole new way of thinking. He actually takes our upside-down thinking and flips it right-side up. St. Augustine was the first to comment on the Sermon of the Mountain as a literary unit. In this staggeringly beautiful discourse, Jesus teaches us how to think and value correctly. He speaks with divine authority. 
not as the scribes. The power of his word to direct us to eternal life is such that even his enemies were forced to admit no man ever spoke like this man. So the Beatitudes, makarios, which should be translated as happy or blessed or fortunate, Jesus begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> this is certainly not the way the world thinks. Those who recognize that I am nothing and that God is everything. And therefore, they depend totally on his way. They depend totally on the Father. And so St. Paul tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. He tells us, Happy and blessed are those who mourn. Mourn over the death of loved ones. Mourn over wickedness. And those who are suffering like Jesus wept over the death of Lazarus and his agony in Gethsemane. He tells us, blessed are the meek, not those who dominate others. Blessed are the gentle and the kind. He tells us, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. Jesus also tells us, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who seek to do God's will, like Jesus did, who said, my food, that is, my heart's desire, is to do the will of him who sent me, his Father, and to accomplish his work. Jesus praises the merciful. Jesus insists that we not only receive mercy, the mercy we desperately need, but we receive it to the extent that we give mercy to others. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, he makes a real clear point of this. Jesus tells us, blessed are the pure of heart. Because the pure of heart love God with an undivided heart. Therefore, all their external actions are a true reflection of their burning love for Jesus. Happy are the peacemakers. They are like Jesus, whose mission was to reconcile the world to the Father and to reconcile and bring harmony between individuals. They become the great prayer warriors of our world. Jesus also tells us that happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus told us, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus said, therefore, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you. And there are all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. for Your reward is great in the kingdom of heaven. When you read the lives of the martyrs, we see how they're rejoicing to have something to suffer for Christ. And Jesus says, he warns us, beware of men, for they will deliver you to councils, 
and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. In this context, Jesus tells her, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, what does that mean? Take up your cross and follow me. What it means is that accept the trials and difficulties of life and you send yourself totally to Jesus. I love the polka term. It means be all in. There are other important lessons that Jesus also gives us on the Sermon of the Mountain. For example, he warns us about anger. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. He warns against adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully, lustfully means you're looking at her as a, a sexual object to be used, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He tells us how we are to treat our enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What did Jesus do on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them. They do not what they are doing. Finally, Jesus warns about who we're selecting as our master. He tells us, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon, which is wealth. You've got to love one or hate the other. What is our choice? He also warns about anxiety. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. Living in the present moment is where we find God, and it's where we always find priests. If we're too much focused in the future, we get anxious and worried. If we're focused too much on the past, we get sad and depressed. Live in the present moment. That's the message Jesus gives us. And he tells us about a narrow gate. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, and it leads to eternal life, and those who find it are few. Unfortunately, we have a problem today. There are many who are reversing this, and they say, oh, the way to heaven, that's the wide and easy way. And the way to hell, that's the narrow harbor. And almost nobody goes there. That's ridiculous. So Jesus tells us, well, who's going to get to heaven? He says, those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Therefore, be doers and not merely hearers of the law. There's so much more that we can say about Jesus public ministry. Uh, we could spend weeks doing this, but I just want to point out a few additional things. First of all, uh, Jesus reveals his divinity in a number of ways, and, and one of the significant ways is he walks on water. We also find in Peter's declaration, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He tells us that true greatness comes from humility, Whoever humbles himself like this little child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And we see this throughout the gospel in so many different ways. 
talks about tribulation, as we've already seen. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. This is a warning. We see this even in the early church during the age of persecution. We saw examples of this along with the great martyrdoms. In addition to the commandments that God gave us on Mount Sinai, he also gives us a new commandment. He says, a new commandment I give you. And he does this on Holy Thursday, the night before he's going to give up his life on Calvary. What is this new commandment? That you love one another, ah, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Boy, that's a standard. And he says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you know theology, if you study scripture, if you pray a lot, no. If you have love for one another, doesn't mean you shouldn't study, shouldn't practice the virtues, shouldn't read scripture, but love is the key. Then at the Last Supper, Jesus institutes the Blessed Eucharist that we're going to talk about later. We'll do a whole discussion of this. It's beautifully developed in the sixth chapter of John's Gospel. We also see it in the institution narratives where Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. And then we come to Jesus' passion, beginning Gethsemane. Bishop Sheen speculated that in his agony in Gethsemane, Jesus suffered more than all the rest of his suffering and the rest of his passion. We read in the book of Hebrews, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who could save him from death. And he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience, or you could say learned love, to what he suffered. And being made perfect through that suffering, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who will obey him, being designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Wow, that beautiful saying is from the fifth chapter of the book of Hebrews. In the midst of his immense suffering, Jesus always focused on the needs of others. It's amazing. Reflect on the passions. It just jumps out in the scriptures. He focuses on doing his agony, on Peter, James, and John. He's worried about them. He tells them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. When Judas comes to betray him with a kiss, in fact, the word that's used in Matthew's gospel is Jesus kissing him much. He's showering Jesus with kisses in order to hide his deception. And Jesus calls him friend. He tries to reach his heart. He heals Malchus's ear that was severed by Peter. He looks at compassion on Peter as Jesus denied him a third time. And Jesus goes out and weeps bitterly because he realized how he betrayed the God he loved. He gives Pilate a special grace to render a just sentence, giving his wife a disturbing dream. 
He instructs the holy women lamenting his suffering. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. He converts Simon to Cyrene, who is forced to help Jesus carry his cross, and his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, who are very well known in the apostolic church. He prays for all those responsible for his death, you and me, because it was our sins that nailed him to the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Those who didn't say we weren't guilty, said we didn't fully understand. And then to the good thief, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Nobody loves the way God loves. And then he ends up, he's given us, he's going to give us his life, his clothes, and finally gives us his mother, woman. Behold your son. And then he said to his disciples, the disciple he loved, Behold your mother. And finally in his death, he gives the gift of faith to the centurion who said, Truly, this was the Son of God. What can we say in summary about Jesus' incredible love? In the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, This is my commandment that you are loved for one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay in his life for his friends. The problem was, when he laid down his life for us, we were not his friends. So while we were very helpless, at the right time, Jesus died for us, the ungodly. We're told in Romans that, why? One will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man, one will dare even to die. But God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But death is not the last word. Jesus conquered death and sin in his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was affirmed by many witnesses. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, Peter and the apostles, Cleophas and another disciple on the road to Emmaus, Paul and more than 500 disciples at one time, along with the mystery of the cross. The marvel of the resurrection was a central belief in the apostolic church. Paul tells us in his first letter to the Corinthians, if Christ had not risen, our faith is futile. All attempts to rational weigh the reality of the resurrection, deceit, vision, symbolism, apparent death, any other ridiculous explanation that people have come over have always proved untenable, even, even to a logical sense, because they simply cannot explain the facts of Easter. And that is, he is risen. One of my favorite stories deals with a Canaanite mother who, when she came to Jesus to save her daughter, he utterly ignored her. Jesus never does that. Then when the disciple asked Jesus to send her away because of her persistent crying out to them, Jesus declared, I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. What does she do? She comes and kneels before Jesus with this urgent request, Lord, help me. 
And surprisingly, Jesus, this is what Jesus says to her. It is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, wait a second. Put yourself in this scene. How would you respond if Jesus declared that you and your daughter were just dogs? Listen to how this amazing woman replied. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Whoa! In other words, she recognized that she was not in God's covenantal family. But she and her daughter would gladly receive the crumbs, the scraps that come from the table of the king of kings and the lord of lords. Whoa, no wonder that Jesus explained to her, Oh, woman, great is your faith. There are four times in the gospel where Jesus used the explanation, Oh, three of the times they punctuate rebukes. Here is great praise. The humble faith is irresistible to God. And then he added these marvelous words to this woman. Let it be done for you as you desire. Let me repeat that. Let it be done. Have you ever heard that before? Jesus performed this miracle with words that parallel his mother's words, her yes, to angel Gabriel when she agreed to become his mother. Let it be done to me according to your word. What a Savior. Let us begin, or end, I should say, with the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this Magnificat podcast. Have you been touched by our time together? If so, for more information or to find a Magnificat chapter near you, go to our website at magnificat-ministry.org or visit us on social media. We would love to hear from you. You can also email us at magnificatcst at aol.com or call 504-828-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Until the next time, may God bless you.